welcome to Myth Matters, storytelling and conversation about mythology and what myth can offer us today. I'm your host and personal mythologist, Dr. Katherine Svela. Wherever you may be in this wide, beautiful, crazy world of ours, you are part of this story circle. And wherever you may be <laughs> in this wide, beautiful, crazy world, I hope it's warmer uh, where you are than it is here in Fort Collins, Colorado right now. Burr. I'm so happy that I moved from Southern California to be present for the coldest temperatures in almost 30 years. <laughs> All to say that I'm very happy that we just celebrated the solstice and are making our turn back towards the longer and warmer days here in the Northern Hemisphere. The solstice is one of many holidays during the season, and today I want to talk about one of the best-known mythological figures here in the United States anyway, and in other parts of the world that have been touched by European culture, Santa Claus. Santa Claus is a mythic figure, <laughs> and his origins are murky in the manner of the mythological. I want to share several of the theories about Santa with you in the hope that maybe some information and the old stories might enhance our appreciation for this time of year and the significance of the old holidays and rituals that we've inherited. Yes, the relentless commercialization and the consumer culture is hard to take. It points out a lot of what is wrong about contemporary life. And yet underneath the crass and the trivial is a spirit of generosity and compassion, gratitude for the gift of life, and the understanding that we are in it together, <laughs> all of us on this beautiful planet Earth. In the figure of Santa Claus, we have a male hero without a gun, you might notice, one whose tools are laughter kindness, and generosity. So personally, I like Santa. Let me begin with one of the most common stories about Santa's history. Some say that Santa Claus's predecessor is Saint Nicholas, a Catholic bishop and saint in the 4th century. Saint Nicholas lived in what is now Turkey and was well known as a miracle worker and the giver of anonymous gifts to those in need. According to one legend, St. Nicholas heard about a very poor man who had three daughters. The daughters were unable to marry because they didn't have dowries, and the family's poverty was so dire that their father was about to sell them into slavery, which meant prostitution. According to the story, St. Nicholas heard about the situation, went to the man's house at night, and tossed a bag of gold coins through the window. He did this for three nights, a bag of gold coins for each one of the daughters. 
Now, we know it was St. Nicholas because on the third night, the father kept watch in order to learn the identity of his benefactor, and he discovered the generosity of St. Nicholas. This is one of many stories about the kindness and generosity of St. Nicholas, and the inspiration that he offers us likely explains the longevity of his stories and also how he came to be morphed and reworked into a figure like Santa Claus that has relevance for us today. Another likely ancestor of our present-day Santa Claus is the god Odin from Norse mythology. Odin was the father god in the Norse pantheon. He was called the father of all. Together with his brothers, Ve and Vili, he killed the first giant and created the world out of the giant's body. Odin made the first man out of an ash tree and the first woman out of an elm tree. As a god of the wind, Odin gave human beings soul, life, and breath. The myths of the Norse pantheon fascinate me because unlike other mythologies, this group of gods operates with the knowledge, the prophecy, that they will be defeated in a great war, that they will die, and that their world will end. So there's a sense of consequences for these divine figures, a a weight and a shadow of tragedy that allows these gods to be heroic in a way that the Greek gods, for example, cannot be. The Greek gods live forever in a state of perfection, messing around with human beings (laughs) because what else would alleviate their boredom? But the Norse gods, well... And Odin in particular, you know, there's a dimension of of love, love for the world and service because they fear the end. Odin was dedicated to preventing the big war that was prophesied. This war was called the Ragnarok. And he was told that it would bring the end of his cosmic time. If you are interested in a really great contemporary handling of this idea of the death of these gods, I highly recommend the novel American Gods by Neil Gaiman. It's one of my favorite books. And if you go into it in particular, knowing it's about Norse mythology, I think you'll really enjoy the references. Anyway, Odin, as the father of all, well, (laughs) carried the responsibility to protect the world. So Odin was the god of battle and of death. This was a war that he was uh, preparing to fight after all, but he knew that there was a limit to the power of the sword. And although he gathered the best warriors around him, 
he also worked to acquire insight and wisdom. Thus, he was also the god of poetry. As part of Odin's quest for understanding and the means to prevent this great war, he went to the Well of Knowledge, which was at the base of the Great World Tree. The Well of Knowledge was located at the base of the second root of the Great World Tree, the root that went to Midgard, which was the world of the humans. This well was carefully guarded by Mirmar, a man who drank from the well every day and was reputed to be the wisest man in the world. When Odin heard of Mirmar and this well, he decided to go and drink his fill. Odin found the well. He greeted the guardian, and he made his request to drink. Mirmar knew who he was, of course, and why he had come. He told Odin that the knowledge provided by this water surpassed anything that the god could imagine. Whoever drinks of it gains a second sight, he said, the ability to see the depths of all things, to see what is otherwise invisible, and you must pay for this power of insight. Odin tore out one of his eyes and dropped it beside the well. Then he plunged his face into the water and drank until he would burst. Thereafter, Odin had only one eye, and he was also known as the All-Seeing. So, Odin was wise. Like Santa Claus, (laughs) wise and very well informed. We're told that Santa Claus has worldwide knowledge of who is naughty and who's nice, and Odin had two big black ravens named Thought and Memory. These ravens traveled throughout the realms, the different worlds, and they kept Odin apprised of everything that happened, especially in Midgard, among the human beings. So Odin was wise. He had worldwide information. He also had the long gray, white hair and beard. He didn't have flying reindeer, though. Odin had a flying horse. Odin had an eight-legged horse, dappled gray, named Slepner. Slepner was a magical creature, was able to leap great distances, fly through the air, and it was widely agreed that Slepner was the finest horse that ever lived that he was supremely intelligent and courageous. Odin acquired Slepner as the result of a little incident uh, that involved Loki, the Norse trickster. I think I talk about Loki in a podcast from the first or second season of Myth Matters. So you might look for that if you're interested in him. The short version is that in the early days of Asgard, the gods wanted to build a wall around their settlement. Remember the Ragnarok threat. 
And a, a builder came to them and said that he could do it in just three months all by himself. And uh, they didn't think that that was even remotely possible. And then the builder said, well, if I do do it, then I want the goddess Freya as my wife, and I'm also going to want the sun and the moon. And the gods, they didn't really trust the builder. They didn't really want to make this deal. But Loki said, hey, (laughs) how else are you going to get a wall without having to build it yourself? So they agreed to do it, and then it turned out that this builder had a magical horse. Hmm. Yeah, a magical horse that was uh, very, very handy in this building project. And so ultimately, it looked like he was going to complete the task on time, and the gods were going to have to give him the sun and the moon and the goddess Freya, which they did not want to do. So they went to Loki, and they said, hey, it's all your fault. You have to solve this problem, or we're going to torture you, and it's going to be very unpleasant. So Loki turned himself into a mare. He lured off the builder's stallion, thus putting an end to the building of the wall. And a little bit later, (laughs) Loki gave birth to a gray foal with eight legs. Yes, he gave birth to Sleipner, who became Odin's flying horse. Now, Odin, as I said, was, among other things, the god of war. And he often led his warriors to battle or out hunting. Out hunting in what the people called the wild hunt. It was said that you felt this band of hunters pass by whenever the wind blew hard. But during the 12 days of Christmas, beginning with the winter solstice, Odin was known to ride with a larger and, well, less reputable, more rowdy (laughs) band. It was believed that the gates of the underworld opened and the spirits of the dead often made an appearance. The Yule fires were lit at this time to encourage the return of the sun, and prudent folks stayed indoors, away from the dark paths and the wild woods. According to these stories, Odin rushed through the skies on Sleipner, dressed in his dark cloak and wide-brimmed hat with his long white beard flowing, Before him were a hooting owl and his two dark ravens, and behind him was a phantom horde of hound dogs, the ghosts of dead heroes, and the souls of those caught between heaven and hell. This group hurtled through the night sky in pursuit of quarry known only to them. Down on earth, The passing of the raging host in this wild hunt was marked by a tumultuous racket of pounding hooves, howling dogs, and raging winds. Every person with common sense was inside, close by the fire, 
But if for some reason a traveler happened to be outside when the hunters passed by, he would be judged on his purity of heart, his courage, and his sense of humor. (laughs) It was very dangerous to disrespect the wild hunt. According to one account, a miller's son who was outside when they went by once yelled rudely out to the hunters, take me with you. And they replied, if you want to hunt, you can also eat. And uh, they threw him a human leg. Now, if you passed the test and you were judged as worthy, you might go home with your shoes full of gold. There's a story about a drunken peasant who had such luck. He was coming home from town late at night, and his path led him through the woods. The wind started blowing, and a voice called out, In the middle of the path! In the middle of the path! And this was a friendly warning that the rough huntsmen were coming by, and they were known to spare those who kept to the middle way. But the peasant was drunk. (laughs) He paid no attention to it. Suddenly, a tall man with a long white beard riding a gray horse came out of the clouds. He tossed the peasant one end of a heavy chain. How strong are you? He said. Let's have a contest. Let's see who can pull the hardest. The peasant took hold of the heavy chain, and while the hunter remounted, he wrapped his end of the chain around a nearby oak tree. The hunter pulled and pulled and pulled, but he could not budge the man. He came back down and dismounted. You wrapped your end around the oak tree, he said to the peasant. Oh, no, 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 I didn't, responded the peasant, who had quickly undone the chain. See, here it is in my hands. We'll have another go then, cried the hunter, and I'll have you in the clouds yet. And then again, as he got back onto his horse, the peasant quickly wrapped the chain around the oak tree. Up high in the sky, the hunting dogs barked, the horses neighed, the hunter pulled, and he pulled. The oak tree creaked at its roots, and the peasant was terrified. But happily, the oak tree stood. You have pulled well, the hunter told him. I've challenged many men, and you are the first to withstand me, so I will reward you. And then he rejoined the ghostly hunters, and they went on their way. The peasant, very much subdued and quite sober, (laughs) at this point cautiously went along his way home. Suddenly, from a great height, a stag fell onto the path in front of him. The mysterious hunter appeared and jumped down from his horse. He pulled out a sharp knife and quickly cut up the game. The blood is yours, he said to the peasant, and you can take a hind quarter as well. My lord, said the peasant, your servant has neither a bucket nor a pot. 
pull off your boot, said the hunter. The peasant did so, and the hunter filled it with blood. Now take the blood and this meat home to your wife and child, the hunter ordered. And then he got on his horse and he was gone. At first, the peasant was so terrified that he barely felt the burden of these heavy boots. But gradually it became heavier and heavier until he was barely able to carry it. He was tired and bent and dripping with sweat when he finally reached his hut. He tumbled inside, and behold, his boot was filled with gold, and the hindquarter was a leather bag filled with silver coins. In the old days, children used to leave their boots or socks out by the hearth on solstice eve, filled with carrots, hay, and sugar for Slepner as part of the Yuletide celebration. And in return, Odin would leave them a gift. Now we leave out the milk and cookies for Santa, and he does the same. Many think that Odin and St. Nicholas were blended under the influence of Christianity, producing the image of a kindly, gift-bearing Santa Claus with a long white beard and eight flying reindeer. Eight flying reindeer. (laughs) Isn't that one of the most fantastic pieces of Santa's story? And the mystery of his space and time-defying journey to deliver gifts to all of the children all around the world in one night. Here's an emerging theory about the origins of our mythology of Santa and his reindeer that I find very interesting and credible, given the scholarship and my personal experiences. That is, that Santa is the result of shamanic practices using a magic mushroom. You may have noticed tree ornaments shaped like Amanita mushrooms and other depictions of that uh, show up in Christmas decorations around the world, particularly in Scandinavia and Northern Europe. According to this theory, the indigenous people native to what we know now as Siberia, the Tungusic people, for example, and the Sami people in the Lapland region of northern Scandinavia are groups that had a very close relationship to the hallucinogenic mushroom Amanita muscara, the holy mushroom, also known as the Alice in Wonderland mushroom. If you are probably familiar with it, I'll post some images on my website. It's red and white, and it's found under certain conifers, i.e. Christmas trees. And this fungi has a symbiotic relationship with the roots of the trees. Now, reindeer are common in Siberia and northern Europe, and the traditional peoples have very close relationship 
to them. One reason for this, interestingly, is that the reindeer seek out the Amanita mushrooms. The reindeer seek out the mushrooms and eat them and presumably trip on them. (laughs) Now, it's quite possible that it is by observing the reindeer that humans came to understand the properties of these mushrooms and also originally how the mushrooms may have been rendered uh, useful to human beings. Amanita muscaria is very toxic. It has to be handled carefully. One common method involves drying. But another way that the chemical compounds in the mushroom can be separated is through having the reindeer ingest them and then the urine. Yes, eating their yellow snow. Amanita muscara is also known as the fly agaric because flying is a common experience in the hallucinations induced by the mushroom, along with distortions in time and space, the Alice in Wonderland experience. The mushroom was sacred to the people and central to the shamanic tradition. According to Carl Ruck, who is a classics professor at Boston University and has been contributing to the scholarship around the use of entheogens, plants, basically, that have been used for millennia to produce a non-ordinary state of consciousness. God revealers, in other words. According to, to Ruck, the sh- these shamans had a tradition of dressing up like the mushrooms. They dressed up in red suits with white spots. These peoples lived in yurts. In the winter time, lots of snow piled up, and they frequently went in and out of their dwellings through the central smoke hole. Yes, the chimney. Between the solstice and the end of the year, the shamans would travel around to the people, bringing mushrooms on reindeer-drawn sleds. They would perform ceremonies for people. The gifts then brought by Santa in the form of healing and visions and perhaps dried mushrooms. I'm going to post a link to an animated short film by Matthew Salton called Santa is a Psychedelic Mushroom (laughs) Um, that was shared by Atlantic Magazine on my website at mythicmojo.com. Now I want to share a few more thoughts about Santa, specifically about Santa and his elves, but first a couple of announcements from the Joseph Campbell Foundation. Woohoo! End of the year gift giving. A new book is coming out called Myth and Modern Living, a Practical Campbell Compendium, 
written by my dear friend and colleague Stephen Geringer. In his 24 funny and thoughtful essays, Geringer explores familiar and esoteric aspects of Joseph Campbell's vision, and and Geringer adds a lot of his own thoughts, which I very much appreciate. You can add a paperback copy or an ebook to your library by making a $10 or more donation to the Joseph Campbell Foundation, and I will post that link at my website, mythicmojo.com. I'm also going to post a link to a short essay of mine titled The Seeds of a Story that is the latest bit of writing in the JCF's weekly Myth Blast series. I highly recommend subscribing to the Joseph Campbell Foundation Myth Blast if you would like to receive interesting reflections on Campbell's work and mythology today. There are a range of interesting and talented people contributing to the Myth Blast series. A big warm welcome to new subscribers to Myth Matters, Marin, Kosima, Jane, Tamara, Bridget, Paul, Merritt, Henry, Lanny, Nancy, Bill, Trish, Paul, Sue, Jackie, Sydney, Laura, Celia, Kyle, Nance, Greg, Tegan, and Miriam. Welcome (laughs) to Myth Matters, and thank you so much for joining my email list. If you are new to Myth Matters, I invite you to head over to the Mythic Mojo website, where you will find all these links that I'm mentioning. You can get on the email list. You'll also find a transcript of this episode and information about my other offerings. There are a number of different ways that you can work with me to bring the power of myth and story into your life and explore your own mythic dimension. You will also find the link to Myth Matters on Patreon. I am very, very grateful for the patrons and supporters of this podcast. Thank you so much (laughs) for your support. I want to give a special shout out to Jane, Genesee, Emmett, and Ronnie. There are some benefits to patrons beyond the good feeling of uh, bringing this work forward. And you'll find all of those details if you click the link. Now, back to Santa. Santa and the elves. This figure of St. Nicholas, as I said, is like blended in with local folklore, a a great deal of which we got from the very snowy and cold parts of Europe and Scandinavia. Now, as part of the original uh, Yuletide celebrations, the bringer of gifts was a goat, the Yule goat. And another figure that got kind of blended into this whole mix here is an elf from Nordic folklore called the Tomta. The Tomta replaced the Yule goat as the one who delivered Christmas presents about maybe 200 years ago. And subsequently then, 
joined the mythology or the clan of Santa Claus. The Tomta is a small elderly man with a white beard. He's around three feet tall, dressed in gray with a red woolen cap. And if you go to track down uh, these images that have the Amanita mascara mushroom in them, Christmas decorations, you will also find Tomta, usually, (laughs) carrying them. The Tomta, or the elf, cares for the animals and the children uh, and the other property at a homestead. And they they have a connection, I think, to other uh, genies, that is, spirits of a particular place, and also ancestors. Our ancestors, <laughs> without whom we wouldn't be here, right? They typically ask very little in return for their protection and their hard work, but they do demand respect. And in some traditions, around solstice time, it was proper to leave the Tomta, who had worked for you all year, a bowl of porridge. So we have Odin, Santa Claus, Saint Nick, household elves, ancestor spirits, shamans, and even the psychedelic mushroom-eating reindeer in Siberia, all wrapped up here together. And they all point towards the reality of an unseen realm behind this one and the beautiful truth of our shared gifts and fate. Stories like these and others that we tell in this holiday season remind us that we are all recipients of some form of generosity in an abundant and magical world. In 1897, Frank Church, an editor at the Sun newspaper, replied to a letter that he received from an eight-year-old girl named Virginia. Virginia asked him, Is there a Santa Claus? And Church said, yes, there is. As certainly as love and generosity and devotion exist. He told her that nobody can conceive or imagine all the wonders that are unseen and unseeable in the world. He concluded that you may tear apart the baby's rattle and see what makes the noise inside. But there is a veil covering the unseen world, which not the strongest man, nor even the united strength of all the strongest men that ever lived, could tear apart. Only faith, fancy, poetry, love, romance can push aside that curtain and view and picture the supernal beauty and glory beyond. Is it all real? Ah, Virginia. In all this world, there is nothing else real and biting. There is indeed a Santa Claus. And that's it for me, Catherine Savela, and Myth Matters. If we have a better understanding of our need for myth and all that our old stories offer, we can live more satisfying lives. We can inhabit a better story and create a more beautiful, just and sustainable world. 
I'm so grateful to you for listening. I wish you a marvelous and wonder-filled holiday season and end of 2022. I'm going to take a little break in keeping with the relatively short days and hibernating energy here (laughs) in Northern Colorado. So I will meet you again for Season 5 of Myth Matters in late January. Until then, my friend, take good care of yourself and keep the mystery in your life alive.